Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show. You are tuned in live. Well, maybe you're not tuned in live. I'm here live. If you are watching right at this exact second in the uh, grand uh, space-time continuum of sorts, you are watching this live, although we make it available for anyone later on. It is, as of this moment, Wednesday, June 28th here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Now, I'm not going to give you a precise time uh, because, as I alluded to at the tail end of the previous show, I'm in a, a different time zone than all Canadians right now. It's actually uh, 10.02 p.m. and I flew overnight uh, from Toronto to Paris yesterday. I'm here covering a free Iran conference, which uh, you may recall I covered the last couple of years and is a, a very, very interesting place to be. It hasn't started yet, so I won't have too much to report on in the show today, but you can keep your eyes peeled to True North and to the uh, future editions of the Andrew Lawton Show as we talk a little bit about this. But uh, I do want to touch on a couple of the big picture issues here, which affect uh, really the culture war in a couple of different dimensions today. I I'm going to speak in just a few moments with Janice Fiamengo, who is a, a tremendous writer and advocate, a, a former professor at the University of Ottawa, but has become a real truth teller, not just on academic freedom, but on a, a number of other issues as well. And, and we're going to talk about the ways that statistics can be used very dishonestly, and I would argue maliciously, in a couple of contexts, but one in particular that we'll explain a little bit more about very shortly. But I also want to just say, sometimes it's nice to look at a headline and it just feels so familiar. It feels like you've been transported back in time to 2021. Like, for example, this one in Global News. Do you need a COVID booster for your summer vacation Experts weigh in. Yes, well, the experts are saying before you go on summer holiday in 2023, apparently you need to get a booster. So if you've been uh, diligently getting your boosters every uh, four to six months, you're probably up to now your uh, 12th, 13th, 14th COVID shot, uh, but you can never be too safe. So they now say even though COVID is no longer a global health emergency, even the World Health Organization has moved on to the pandemics of climate change and the pandemics of misinformation, even they're not too concerned about COVID, uh, but you can be. And a couple of the experts they speak to here basically say, don't you dare go away for the summer without getting your COVID booster. So I wouldn't exactly call that a PSA. Uh, but like I said, some people just do not want to move on from this era. And I think they need to be called out when they go down that road. Uh, let's talk about parental rights, though, because this is something we touched on a couple of weeks back on the show in the context of New Brunswick. And what the New Brunswick government has done, I, I think, is quite good. I spoke to Tanya Granick-Allen, who's a, a great parental rights activist about this, and she said, yeah, it's good. But it's also, in many ways, some low-hanging fruit. The New Brunswick government has amended an education policy to do a number of things, but the crux of it, and what people are really getting up in arms about, is to say that if a child under the age of 16, we're not even talking about 16, 17, 18-year-olds who are in grade you know, 10, 11, 12, we're talking about generally speaking, elementary school students and some young high school students, if one of them wishes to officially change their gender or name at school, they need to have parental consent to do it. Now, the policy does not actually say, contrary to what some critics online have said, that they will be outed to parents in any other way. In fact, if a child does not want the parent uh, spoken to about this, then they are actually referred 
to a social worker to talk about this, to offer some tips and guidance. But we're basically saying here, if you are under 16, you shouldn't be able to do something as drastic and radical as changing your gender without your parents knowing about it and signing off on this. And anyone who's ever had a child go through the school system and knows uh, how you need to sign a permission slip for anyone, for anything, this shouldn't seem all that surprising. But this has become a very pivotal issue because you have the Justin Trudeau government taking aim at New Brunswick. Seamus O'Regan, for example, who is uh, one of the ministers in Trudeau's cabinet, had tweeted out about how uh, this is all uh, essentially harmful. He was going off about how uh, kids do not have the freedom to be themselves because of what's happening in New Brunswick. And he was basically saying, how dare Pierre Polyev, who talks a good game about freedom, take aim at uh, or support this uh, policy in New Brunswick. Now, I should say, I don't actually think it's fair to say Pierre Polyev has been supportive of this policy directive. A couple of weeks ago, he was doing a press conference in Toronto, and my colleague at True North, Noah Jarvis, asked him about the New Brunswick policy. Take a look. Recently, the uh, New Brunswick uh, Premier has made changes to their LGBTQ protection policy requiring um, teachers to notify parents uh, when bef before they change uh, the use of their pronouns or in their given name. Uh, what is your position on the matter? I'll let provinces make uh, decisions about the education system. That was a case where the answer was much shorter than the question itself. The answer was as about as close to a non-answer as you can get. Uh, Noah wasn't asking him about provincial rights. He was asking him about the policy in particular and what Pierre Polyev thought about it. And he defaulted to, well, I'll let provinces do what they're going to do. Now, Polyev gave a little bit of a better response about it when he was asked in New Brunswick, where he was campaigning a couple of days ago in Moncton, specifically on axing the carbon tax. But again, at press conferences, people can ask whatever they want to ask. And he gave a slightly better answer. Take a look. Do you stand with Premier Blaine Higgs on policy 713? Look, uh, this is a provincial policy. I know that Justin Trudeau has butted into that. The Prime Minister has no business in decisions that should rest with provinces and parents. So my message to Justin Trudeau is butt out and let provinces run schools and let parents raise kids. It's, like I said, a slightly better response than, well, it's up to the provinces to decide, but not much. Because really what Pierre Polyev is doing there is appealing not to the core idea of parental rights, but what he's doing is appealing to the idea of provincial rights. And, and don't get me wrong, balance of power, very important. Division of power is very important. Provincial rights, federalism, all of this is entirely reasonable. And I'm glad to see a federal leader and potential prime minister who's going to respect the federalist project. But there's something more fundamental than just the education system here that I feel Polyev and the Conservatives are missing an opportunity to seize. And it's probably fear that is going into this because you can't talk about parental rights in this context without wading into the culture war on gender ideology and on these battles that are taking place across the country, across the Western world, when people are asking very critical questions, very contentious questions about what children should be taught, about what activities should be encouraged or discouraged, about what manifestations of gender identity should be fostered and affirmed versus treated or treated in at least some other way. And this is a very difficult thing to do. And yes, it is a political landmine. But leadership is about stepping into the fire 
when that's where the fight is. And the reason that the New Brunswick policy is so interesting here, and I said a couple of weeks ago, I did not have on my bingo card New Brunswick leading the charge in the culture war in a way that's stronger than the Alberta UCP government under Danielle Smith is, for example. But the thing about what's happening in New Brunswick is that this is being treated by the media and by folks like Justin Trudeau and Blaine Higgs as being this gross affront to equality, to liberty, to whatever. But Parents across the country think this is an entirely reasonable thing. Parents who, I should say, are not particularly political or conservative. That polling that Second Street did before the New Brunswick policy came in showed that parents were pretty clearly in a, a solid majority on believing that something like this happening in the schools should involve them in some way. The parents are the first and primary educators of their children, not teachers, not school boards, and certainly not the state. So the reason I say all of that is to say that it isn't just the morally right thing to do to stand up for parental rights, but it is the politically right thing to do. This is actually a political win for conservatives if they were prepared to take this on. And I think it actually is not a coincidence that his answer is a little bit more substantive this week than it was a couple of weeks ago, that he's prepared to go a little bit more. I don't know, and I, I don't want to be too cynical here. Maybe they just got some good polling in. Maybe he was just in New Brunswick and realized he couldn't hide with the issue when he's literally in the province in which this issue is a live one politically. But the whole point is uh, he can't just appeal to parental or to provincial rights without appealing to parental rights. And this is the problem I've had with a lot of conservative strategy in the past. For example, when the trucker vaccine mandate came into place back in the fall of 2021, the conservatives at the time led by Aaron O'Toole didn't come out and say the trucker vaccine mandate is wrong because vaccine mandates are wrong. They came out and said, well, we don't like this because the supply chains are bad and, you know, grocery store shelves are already empty and we already have inflation. So we can't do something that's further going to challenge the transportation of fruits and vegetables and meat and bread and all this stuff to your grocery store. And sure, that's an argument, but it's an argument that deliberately goes around what should be and is the core argument of this debate. And I, I think the same thing is true here. I mean, yeah, you can say, look, New Brunswick has the right to govern its own affairs and Justin Trudeau should butt out. But that misses the mark on why this issue matters so much. What's happening in New Brunswick is not a story of federalism. Federalism may be how New Brunswick gets away with it when it angers Justin Trudeau so much. But the story here is a province that's saying we need to first and foremost listen to parents. A province that says we believe parents need to be respected. And by the way, is providing a policy that is very measured and very reasonable and doesn't go nearly as far as the critics of the policy think it does. Now, whether it could or should is a different story. But there have been cabinet ministers in New Brunswick that have said, I don't want to be a part of this government anymore. And Blaine Higgs has, to his credit, stuck to his guns and said, OK, see it. Bye. Peace out. I don't really care because he knows that this is the right thing to do. And the conservatives, as I've often said, cannot just be the auditors in chief. They have to be the commanders in chief. They have to be leaders. They have to lead on all issues. They can't just be as uh, I think it was Scott Hayward uh, from right now said Justin Trudeau with a slightly better accountant. That is not what the conservatives need to be. They have to be prepared to lead on issues. And here you have one of these coalition building issues where just ordinary moms and dads across the country 
are in line with social conservatives, are in line with fiscal conservatives, are in line with... This is one of those rare issues that is naturally broader than the existing conservative political coalition. And they'd be foolish to not lead on it. But I say, politics aside, they need to lead on it because it is the right thing to do. Parents matter, and we cannot ignore that and cannot respect any system that does ignore that. We'll certainly talk about this more in the days and weeks to come. I suspect we haven't heard the end of this just yet. (laughs) I should just say, too, it's really rich from Justin Trudeau, who uh, whenever Bill 21, which is the secularism bill in Quebec, comes up, he clams up as, oh, oh, well, you know, province, uh, Quebec, uh, provincial rights, we can't do it. But when it's a provincial rights issue in New Brunswick, it's all about this is unsafe and this is terrible for the children. So uh, it's almost as if the appeal to federalism is inconsistent at best from uh, Justin Trudeau just as much as from other leaders. Uh, Let's move on to this other issue, which admittedly was one that uh, completely stayed off my radar until I read about it from uh, Janice Fiamengo's great newsletter, The Fiamengo File. And part of the reason it uh, completely escaped me is because it involves someone who used to play for the NHL, uh, which I'm told is a cricket league. No, maybe it's football, hockey, hockey, NHL, hockey, yeah. Uh, I get so many angry emails when I do that gag. I know NHL is hockey. That's about all I know. But it was a rather moving PSA from a former NHL figure. Let's roll this for you now. I don't remember the hit. I remember everything leading up to it, but nothing after. He came from behind me. I didn't see it coming. I was hit in the side of the head. I remember being confused. My ears were ringing. It's hard to talk about. I still experience pain, mood swings. The headaches are debilitating. But this isn't my story. It's mine. That was former Vancouver Canucks captain Trevor Linden in a PSA for the YWCA uh, talking about the disparity between concussions in hockey and concussions in uh, women who have suffered from domestic violence. Now, I I should say, first and foremost, it's a a very compelling, powerful ad. It's very well produced. It's it's a well-presented message. It's a shocking message when they say 92% of women, girls, and gender diverse people who experience traumatic brain injury uh, do so as a result of violence by an intimate partner. And they also talk about the staggering statistics of what percentage of women will encounter a brain injury from this. And I'll talk about those numbers in a moment, but I I just first want to say it's often very odd when people try to link two disparate issues and two distinct issues together. One kind of random one that just happened to come up yesterday is this uh, tweet from Neurodiversity Ireland. So neurodiversity is typically the, the world of autism. And they say that there's no neurodiversity without LGBTQ+. And we can't be neuroaffirming without being LGBTQ plus affirming. And we can't respect people with autism unless we respect people with LGBTQ plus identity. And it, it, you're looking at this and you're like, I, I don't know why these two things matter. And, and this is where you, you get into territory where you're making comparisons that are leading people to a particular conclusion that might not be the right one. But in this particular case, we have numbers that are contributing to that. Janice Fiamengo is a retired professor from the University of Ottawa and also writes the Fiamengo file on Substack and joins me now. Uh, Janice, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. 
Well, thank you very much for having me on your show, Andrew. I, I'm really pleased to be able to talk about this concussion campaign hoax. The key paragraph here, just to, to put into context that staggering number there, is that four in 10 women and girls in Canada will face violence from a current or former partner, according to Statistics Canada. And 92% of those will suffer a traumatic brain injury due to blows to their head or strangulation. And you say in your newsletter here, uh, that is effectively saying that more than 30% of Canadian women more than and girls, more than 3 in 10, will get a brain injury from battering. So the numbers are pretty clear there. What's What do they get wrong? Well, everything is wrong in it. It's also mentioned that for every one professional hockey player who experiences a concussion, 7,000 girls and women in Canada will experience traumatic brain injury or a concussion. So I looked that up. It says that uh, on average, about 80 professional hockey players suffer concussion a year. So 80 times 7,000, that if my math is correct, would be about 560,000 Canadian girls and women suffering concussion from intimate partner violence every year. That is a staggering number. Now, how is that number arrived at? Well, first of all, there's the reference to the StatsCan survey, which found that more than four in 10 Canadian women reported suffering from intimate partner violence in their lifetimes. It also happened to mention that about one third of Canadian boys and men reported suffering from intimate partner violence as well. But of course that's not mentioned. Then it gets to another study that makes this claim about 92%. However, when you look into both of these studies, you realize that the social science behind the claims is simply not, it, it's, it doesn't support those particular claims. And I really looked into this very carefully. For one, the claim about 44% of girls and women suffering intimate partner violence. It is a large survey conducted by StatsCan, over 43,000 people, but they measure violence so extremely elastically that it clearly has nothing to do with concussions. Vi they count violence to include psychological violence. That means being called a bad name. They count a wide range of so-called physical violence, including someone punching a wall, uh, having an object thrown at you that may or may not have hit you, that you know might have caused damage if it had. They count um, being forced or someone trying to force you to perform a sex act that you didn't want to perform, uh, shoving, all, all sorts of things. So, and, and while I would agree that some of these things are certainly abusive and some of them are violence, I don't think the psychological violence is quite at the same level being called a bad name, um, but, but certainly it is hard to see how those types of violence could possibly lead to traumatic brain injury. So there's a big problem with the total number there. 
when we go yeah. to the 92 percent it gets even stranger but that ju takes I, just to jump in on on yeah, those sorry. figures first because I, mm -hmm. I i i want to just preempt the obvious criticism here that you and i are, are downplaying this when i i certainly am not and i i know you're not and i i believe that abuse is wrong but abuse and violence have never in my understanding been synonyms i mean i'll defer to you as the english right. professor but those words have very different meanings so they're including things that are non uh, that are abusive and non-physical yes. as violence mm -hmm. yes and that's a, a huge problem for understanding what it means when people start talking about the numbers of women and girls who suffer mm -hmm. from supposed violence and, and violence that's not directed at the woman or girl but at a wall or throwing mm -hmm. a plate or something which again could exactly. be very threatening it could be very yes. traumatizing could be a stepping stone to violence but it is not directed at a person Right. And it has absolutely nothing to do with traumatic brain injury, clearly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they, it's impossible to tell from the survey how severe the violence was that was reported. So they lump in everything. If you remember that 20 years ago, you had a jealous partner, that will be counted as your having experienced violence along with everything else. There isn't even a category in the StatsCan survey and the report that was based on it for the types of violence that lead to traumatic brain injury, which are choking until you pass out or violence to your head. They don't even have a category for blows to the head. So they're talking about a whole range of issues. They, they lump together, for example, being shoved, pushed or thrown down. Well, even right there, it's impossible to know how severe to be shoved. Yes, that might be quite severe or might not be very severe at all. And, uh, and, and there is no way of telling from the survey whether that violence led to the person having to go to the hospital, you know, whether it led to an actual injury or not. It is sim simply a, a way of measuring self-reports. We don't really know what those numbers mean at all. And the range of types of acts or verbal acts mm. that are measured there is simply far too elastic to draw any clear conclusions about numbers. So, so with that, how do they get to that 92%? Yeah. So 92% is even stranger and I find more shocking. It refers to a study, which then refers to another study. It's so it isn't even the study that's referred to. That study is an American study of black women who experienced severe violence, both in childhood and in their adult life, specifically being choked or being knocked unconscious. Out of those, it was only 95 women. That's a fairly small survey. Out of those women, about 33% experienced uh, assumed not even clarified, but assumed traumatic brain injury. Now, within that study, it referred in a, in a background section of the report to another study that found up to 92%, listen to this, of women who experienced traumatic brain injury, 92% of those women had received the traumatic brain injury as a result of intimate partner violence. So then they flipped the numbers around and said that of women who experience intimate partner violence, up to 92% will have traumatic brain injury. I think that's called a faulty syllogism. 
It's... I think I learned that in my first week of research methods in university, which was like a mandatory course that everyone had to do of like one of the things that you are never supposed to do when analyzing data yes. is reverse I mean, it... your, your cause and your effect. Yes, it's I, I find that shocking. It, it either indicates I mean, I don't know what what to conclude about that, except that either the researchers who come up with these claims are not able to read the studies that they're basing their claims on, or it means that they are deliberately misinforming us, misrepresenting the studies that they're relying on. But either way, it is a shocking misrepresentation of the reality of intimate partner violence. Your, your point on this is something I, I'm curious about, because obviously I, I think facts matter. And I, I think regardless, this is not, uh, in my view, a, a moral judgment on on the substance of, of this. It's, it's saying that these are the numbers and the numbers don't lie unless we interpret them the way they do. And then we can twist them. But but ultimately, this is still a real issue. And, and we know that intimate partner violence exists. And we know that it can have very serious mental and physical consequences. So uh, why, why is this something that's so important to you? Well, uh, for one thing, although we know that intimate partner violence exists, I don't think we really have any clear understanding of how prevalent it is and how serious it is. And I don't think we have any understanding from these kinds of studies, which inflame the situation. Uh, notice, of course, again, uh, male victims of violence are never mentioned here. So no, and, and there than, have been some statistics Canada surveys that have found males are 50% of victims yes, of intimate partner mm -hmm. violence. This particular one found that males report violence at a rate of 36%. In their lifetimes, boys and men will experience some form of intimate partner violence compared to that 44%. So that is not a massive discrepancy there. And we're talking about mostly boys and men who are victimized by girls and women. So um, when we're talking about violence, I think it's very important to understand that violence is a human problem. It is not a problem in which males are solely perpetrators and girls and women are solely victims. It tends to be caused, not as the feminists will tell us, because men are exerting their power over women and girls and you know, through violence, which is what this campaign specifically says. Uh, but no, actually, most people who are not feminist ideologues who study this problem will tell us that violence occurs because of a variety of circumstances. They're the same for both males and females, and they have to do with substance abuse, they have to have to do with mental illness, and they have to do with childhood abuse. People who are ab abused as children tend to become abusers. So that is a much more human way of understanding the problem. I would say a much more useful way. And what a campaign like this does with these really staggering numbers is it demonizes boys and men, and it terrorizes girls and women and it misinforms girls and women about the realities of the world that we live in and i think it 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 makes it seem justified to treat boys and men as a category of human being who are deserving of contempt disgust and harsh punishment 
And I think it also means that when boys and men are accused of violence or sexual violence, that we tend to think, yeah, they're probably guilty because I heard that horrific statistic about 560,000 girls and women a year being the victim of intimate partner violence. So this is probably a case where this guy did what he's being accused of doing. And I think that's just terrible. It, it really uh, mis miseducates all of us about the realities of men and women's lives. I, I mentioned before I, I brought you in that rather absurd tweet trying to link, you know, autism awareness with pride. And I, I think that we're, we're seeing to maybe not as dramatic a, a way of doing that, but, but something very similar here of taking this issue that people know that there's been a lot of advocacy on and research in, which is concussions and brain injuries, traumatic brain injuries, and trying to like push it into this other narrative and, and mm -hmm. in a way that maybe it just doesn't quite fit at all. And it's not to say there can't be traumatic brain injury from this, but it's like, if there is, that's not the core issue. The core issue is the intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I find that often when you read these studies, uh, there was a study a, a few years ago that's been, well, some years ago now, but it's been repeatedly cited uh, about the relationship between violence against women and uh, natural disasters. There was a huge kerfuffle years ago about uh, the Australian wildfires and claims made that men who came home from fighting those fires were taking out their stress on the women and girls in their lives. And the study that was cited to prove this was a study about Hurricane Katrina that claimed that violence against women had, had doubled following Hurricane Katrina. And when I looked into that study, it was unbelievable how, how weak the research was on which that claim was based. It was a tiny study. It showed that yes, violence had allegedly doubled um, but it had gone from a tiny, tiny number in this small study to double that number, which is essentially meaningless when the numbers are so low. And it found that violence against boys and men, that what they had reported anyway, uh, had been higher both before and after Hurricane Katrina. So boys and men were reporting higher levels of psychological violence and higher levels of physical violence both before and after. And that was never mentioned in any of the discussions about the meaning of the connection between disaster and, and violence against women. So, so, so often there are attempts to, uh, as they say, raise awareness and um, call for greater resources to be put into protecting girls and women. And it's based on extremely shaky statistics and it seems designed really just to support a particular worldview in this case in which men are always guilty and women are always in innocent victims and it's a shame yeah and I, i'm glad you mentioned the percentage issue because that's always been the, this point that i've tried to take issue with because I, I think it's one of the most insidious ways in which something is overblown in terms of its effect i, I know with hate crimes we see it all the time where uh there'll be a report that says oh you know hate crimes against this group have increased by 60 percent and you look at the numbers and they've gone up by 14 you know 14 yeah. individual cases and that's mm -hmm. a, a an increase in in 60 percent and, and i remember yeah. i wrote a column about this years ago when i was with global news and the editor actually would not publish uh, large parts of it because they say well no percentages don't lie and i said well actually they do mm -hmm. uh, you know they don't lie in the sense that yes 60 percent of you know 100 is 60 but they they do lie when you're trying to make a point that something has had this dramatic increase you know exactly. there's a difference between something going up from a thousand to sixteen hundred say and something going up from 10 to 16. In, indeed, yes. And that is the thing. And, you know, and it's so frustrating when you see that people 
are people with an agenda are quite willing to obfuscate by using the percentage rather than giving us the actual numbers. And so many of us don't have time, you know, to look, this took me a couple hours, you know, to read through that huge stats can report and to actually fi figure out what they meant by violence. And then to look through the various studies that were cited to prove this 92% number. Most people don't have time to do that kind of research. So that's why it's so important that the people who are doing the reporting are scrupulous about explaining to us what those numbers actually mean. And when you mix in advocacy, um, you know, political agendas with reporting, you get this kind of, um, you know, phantasmatic uh, scaremongering. And it's, yeah, it's, it's really concerning. Janice Fiamango, you can read her takedown of this PSA and lots of other great work over at the Fiamango file on Substack. Janice, thank you so much for coming on today. Great to talk to you as always. Great to talk to you, Andrew. All right. Thanks very much. And yeah, and again, I, I don't want to at all dismiss or diminish the importance and significance of, of this issue. I think uh, violence is wrong. I certainly think domestic violence is wrong, but I think we need to have a very honest discussion about it. And I, I don't like when people are trying to just link all these different things together in a way that doesn't quite align with reality. Uh, we are going to wind down for this program. I had a burning question from one viewer who writes, how beautiful are the women over there in France? That's the question we need an answer to. Uh, well, I would say never nearly as beautiful as one particular woman back in Canada. That is my answer and I am sticking to it. But it is good to be over here. I actually haven't had a chance to see much of France yet. I, I got in this morning. I got to the hotel. I, I'm in like the generic nondescript hotel room uh, here to do the show. So I haven't actually enjoyed too, too much of it. But hopefully we'll have some uh, pictures and stories and footage from the road in the days to come. Uh, one thing that I am going to point out, though, just very briefly, I saw this ad on on the plane. I was watching a movie uh, before I fell asleep, but I can't, I'm not, no, I remember the movie. I'm not telling you the movie because it was embarrassing, uh, but I was watching a movie and you have to watch uh, before the movie starts a bunch of ads because it's not enough that you've paid Air Canada, however much to ride the, uh, to take the plane. You also have to watch advertising. And I saw this particular ad, which I was like, I have to talk about this on the show tonight. So I went and found it online and I can play this 15 second ad for you. Now I'm not trying to give visa free advertising because I'm going to mock the whole thing and you'll understand why the second you see it. Roll that. Okay, so the whole point is you're trying to get your ice cream and the seagull comes and steals the ice cream and then the steel seagull comes and steals your cash and then you can pay Visa because this uh, seagull that has managed to steal your ice cream and your cash or your, uh, with, with immense surgical precision and speed is not also going to take your credit card. That's the premise we're supposed to uh, rely on here. Uh, but then the, the tagline, all of the ad was fine. You know, CGI seagulls are great. That's good. Uh, all of it comes to an end when they say that Visa is safer than cash. 
This ties in well with the push we've been talking about in the last few weeks toward digital ID and digital currency. This idea that cash is king is one that is increasingly under threat from government and from people that have a significant financial stake in the digitization of the economy, places like Visa and MasterCard. And the interesting thing is, let's just go with the narrative here. If someone steals $20 out of your hand, be it a seagull or someone else, you've lost $20. If someone steals your Visa card, you could be out thousands of dollars. And even if you're managed, uh, you manage to uh, get the charges returned, you still have to deal with the hassle of doing that. And sometimes you aren't able to do it. So the idea that cash is less safe than a credit card misses the mark entirely. And more importantly, it is a lot more reliable to have cash. We live in a country in which the government froze the bank accounts and credit cards of its political critics, which you cannot freeze cash is the one message that people need to realize here. So anyway, I've gotten like a 60-second rant out of a 15-second ad that I saw on a plane, but I had to get it off my chest. Uh, Sean, uh, the producer here, says he likes the ad uh, because seagulls deserve more media representation. So Sean's going to go all intersectional and uh, say that we need more uh, diversity in film to uh, encompass the seagulls. So we'll have uh, Seagulls Lives Matter posters on the show before long. But uh, that does it for us for today. We will talk to you on Friday with a special uh, Canada Day edition of the show, which we already have recorded. So uh, if you wonder why I'm all of a sudden back home and not in Paris covering the Free Iran Conference, that's why. And we'll have uh, footage from this when we are able to get it to you uh, probably on Monday show, but we'll have some online between now and then. And just by way of context, I, I know that this is not necessarily the biggest burning issue for a lot of Canadians. So uh, I'll write about this a little bit, but the, the question of why Iran matters, it's not just because I believe in meddling in other countries' affairs, quite the contrary, in fact. It's that Iran is a country that is a powerful force in supporting terrorism and actually perpetrating acts of terrorism around the world. And it is the Iranian regime uh, backed by China in large ways that allows it to do this. And it is interesting that this conference uh, two years ago in Paris, no, it was more than that, a few years ago in Paris, was the uh, target of a bombing plot by an Iranian diplomat. And uh, hopefully I will survive this week. Uh, thankfully, they managed to thwart that attack and the guy is serving a prolonged prison sentence now. Uh, but that is what happens if you take a stand for freedom. You end up in the crosshairs of the regimes who deplore freedom. So that's what we're doing. Hopefully we'll uh, live to tell the tale. And I look forward to being back in the studio with you before long. But do tune in to the Friday Canada Day special and have a great rest of the week. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.